Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Bible Study Podcast, and let's begin uh, our time with the subject of denial. For instance, when it comes to hair loss, something I'm very familiar with, either you own it or else you're in denial, or you could just shave your head completely, which is what I chose to do a few years ago. No amount of creative combing is ever going to fool anyone, except maybe yourself. If you're in denial about your hair loss, trust me, everyone else is aware of it. It's the same with other challenges like uh, weight loss. One guy was told that he needed to lose weight, and his response was, I'm not fat. These are just airbags for my muscles. Uh, I suppose that's one way of looking at it. Denial becomes even more dangerous, though, when it comes to spiritual truth. It literally becomes a matter of eternal life and death. In the latter part of Mark chapter 14, we're going to see a couple of different types of denials or situations involving denial. First, the denial of unbelievers, and then the denial of a believer. Both are dangerous places to be, and so I'm titling this message, Dangerous Denials. Well, let's begin our reading by picking up in verse 53 of Mark 14. We read that they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, elders, and scribes. But Peter followed at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the council sought testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies didn't agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with hands, and then within three days... I will build another temple not made with hands, but even then their testimony did not agree. And the high priest then stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? Was it What is it that these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of any witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. In our country today, and right before our very eyes, we're seeing weekly examples of the miscarriage of justice, where the innocent are said to be guilty and the guilty are said to be innocent. But the biggest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world took place when the sinless Son of God was accused of blasphemy and then condemned to die for speaking the truth about who he was. 
Even so, it was all being used sovereignly by God to bring about his divine plan of salvation. Leading up to this mockery of a trial, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own disciples, Judas Iscariot. After Judas kissed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and identified him to the soldiers, Jesus was immediately arrested and then brought back to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. You know, in first century Israel, there was a solid legal system with standards and safeguards to ensure at least a reasonable amount of fairness and justice. Nevertheless, with the arrest and trial of Jesus, virtually every part of the Jewish legal system was trampled underfoot in an all-out effort to murder Jesus. You know, justice may be blind, but evil can see in the dark. Using all four Gospels, then, we can piece together what amounted to six phases of Jesus' trials, uh, from his arrest in Gethsemane to his sentence to die. It all took place in rapid succession in the early morning hours of Friday, what we now call Good Friday. So let's briefly recap, and this is what took place right after his arrest in Gethsemane. First off, Jesus was brought to the house of Annas, the former high priest. Then Jesus was taken to Caiaphas and to some Sanhedrin members that were assembled there hastily. Thirdly, Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin again, and they cast a final vote to condemn him. Then Jesus was brought to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate briefly sent Jesus to Herod Antipas, and then he was sent back to Pontius Pilate, where he was sentenced to die. So first, Jesus was sent to the former high priest, Annas. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the current and acting high priest, but Annas, his father-in-law, and the former high priest, was still wielding the power behind the title. And so even though Annas was no longer the official high priest, he was indeed the most powerful uh, and influential religious figure in Jerusalem. The simple fact that Jesus was brought to Annas first after Jesus was arrested reveals how he was still the dominant power behind the scenes. And uh, we can think back and remember how earlier in Passion Week, Jesus had entered the temple courtyards. Remember, he overturned the money changer tables and drove out the livestock sellers. And it was Annas who was running all of that from the shadows while making tremendous profits. In fact, those markets were commonly called the bazaars of Annas. You know, it was like a mafia operation, and Annas was the first century version of Don Corleone. Having Jesus executed and eliminated then was crucial to him because Jesus was threatening his financial empire. So while members, various members of the Sanhedrin were being awakened in those early hours of Friday morning and summoned to the house of Caiaphas, his father-in-law, Annas, first had Jesus brought to his home so he could formulate or create a formal charge against him. Annas was clearly quarterbacking the plot to railroad Jesus. Jesus was first taken to the home of Annas because there was no crime or charges at the time of his arrest. They arrested Jesus, and then afterwards they worked on coming up with some charges. Annas and Caiaphas lived next door to each other, and they shared a common courtyard together. So after Annas came up with some trumped-up charges... Jesus was taken next door to Caiaphas, the acting official high priest. 
Joining Caiaphas there was a gathering of chief priests, elders, and scribes, that collective group of religious leaders better known as the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. So let's just take a moment to consider some of the reasons why the trial of Jesus was illegal. According to Jewish law, number one, no trial was to be held at night and only in daylight hours. Then no trial was permitted to take place during the Sabbath or on the day leading up to the Sabbath, which began at sunset. No trials were allowed on Jewish feast days like, hello, Passover. So all those laws were being trampled and violated. Along with that, the verdict was already decided before the trial even began. And by Jewish law, the Sanhedrin could not initiate any charges. They only were empowered to investigate them and then render decisions. But notice, they clearly made themselves jury and judge. Another law was that a full day of fasting and prayer was required for Jewish leaders between the time of sentencing and the actual execution. And then finally, this trial was conducted outside of a court at the home of Caiaphas. And you know, that's just some of the laws that were broken and some of the examples of how justice was miscarried. During that time, both Peter and John were there in the courtyard between the houses of Annas and Caiaphas. They were there trying to pick up new information as to what was happening with Jesus, and in doing so, they were keeping warm at the soldier's fire. Meanwhile, inside the house of Caiaphas, false witnesses were being assembled and brought in to testify against Jesus so they could officially charge him. Since those religious leaders had paid money to Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus, I would have to believe that those same leaders were also bribing these false witnesses with money to testify against Jesus. And don't forget, remember after the resurrection, Matthew records that the same religious leaders gave money to the soldiers, the Roman soldiers that were guarding the tomb, instructing them to lie and report that the disciples had come and stolen the body while they slept. But money or no money, they couldn't even find two false witnesses clever enough to fabricate a story that they could agree on. They were either misquoting Jesus or twisting things that he said or else testifying that he said things that he never said. By the way, in Deuteronomy 19.16, the law stated that if malicious witnesses brought false accusations against an innocent person, those false witnesses were then to receive the penalty that was intended for the innocent victim. So in this case, those two liars should have been executed. They should have been crucified. At this point, feeling frustrated with the inability of the false witnesses to agree on their testimony, Caiaphas attempted to force Jesus into incriminating himself. But in verse 61, we read that Jesus kept silent and answered nothing. At the moment when the high priest demanded that Jesus speak up and respond in front of all those council members, guards, and false witnesses, Jesus responded with deafening silence, a little well-deserved humiliation for Caiaphas. But more importantly, it was the fulfillment of a prophecy, Isaiah 53.7, about the suffering Savior. That prophecy reads, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
We also read in the Gospels that Jesus was silent before Herod, and again, he stood silent before Pilate. You know, sometimes silence makes the loudest statement. Then Caiaphas placed Jesus under oath, according to Matthew's gospel, and demanded to know if he was the Son of God. Here in verse 62, Jesus responded this time, and here's the difference. In fulfilling Isaiah 53, 7, Jesus was silent before the false accusations leveled against him, and he didn't try to defend himself. But when placed under oath as to his divine identity, he responded with the truth that he was the Son of God. You know, it was the height of hypocrisy that Caiaphas would demand the truth from Jesus, all while bringing lies and false accusations against him. After Jesus calmly stated that he was the Messiah going to heaven and returning again in the future, Caiaphas was outraged, or at least in my opinion, pretended to be outraged, and he put on a display of righteous indignation by ripping his priestly garment. Now, I hate to put a damper on such an Oscar-worthy performance, but you know, Leviticus 21.10 forbids the high priest from tearing his robes. So, while falsely accusing Jesus, Caiaphas himself was profaning his priestly position. By the way, some of you might be wondering about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They were both part of the Sanhedrin Council, and the Gospels tell us they had not consented or voted in favor of condemning Jesus. And yet, we read here at the end of verse 64 that the whole gathered council condemned Jesus to die. Is this a contradiction? Absolutely not. Clearly, since neither Joseph nor Nicodemus had consented to this miscarriage of justice, it's evident that they had not been summoned or invited to this gathering. The Sanhedrin only needed a certain amount of members, a majority, and not the entire council to render this vote. Both Anna, Annas and Caiaphas were both aware that uh, Joseph and Nicodemus had been somewhat favorable towards Jesus and, in fact, had already spoken up in favor of treating him more fairly. So Caiaphas condemns Jesus for blasphemy and uh, the claim that he was the son of God, and the council members there agreed with him. They all condemned him. But along with all the other illegal trial procedures, notice that no one was permitted or invited to speak on behalf of Jesus. No evidence of his divine claims were presented, such as witnesses to his many miracles. Jesus is simply railroaded by this kangaroo court. And coming back to our message title and the thread of these verses, we see the first part of dangerous denials. Caiaphas and the council all deny the deity of Christ accusing him of blasphemy, and along with that, they denied him any sort of fair trial. But as Jesus himself said earlier in his ministry, if anyone denies me here on earth, I shall deny them before my Father in heaven. So these denials and judgments by those unsaved religious leaders led to their own eternal judgment and suffering. Well, chronologically, this was still in the early morning hours on Friday, and it wouldn't be until about 6 o'clock that they would formally charge Jesus and then take him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. They were going to take him to Pilate because they didn't have the authority to carry out the sentence of execution. That would be only the Romans who could do that. 
Now, in the meantime, it's believed that Jesus was held in kind of a dungeon-like enclosure uh, below the house of Caiaphas. And now today there's a church there, the church of uh, St. Peter in, Sal- in Galicantu is what it's called. And uh, you can still visit that dungeon uh, there today that we believe was the place where Jesus may have been held. But before they placed him in that dungeon, we read here in verse 65 that they abused Jesus by spitting and hitting and mocking and striking him. Much like the incidents that we hear about today when prisoners are roughed up while in custody, Jesus was abused and beaten. But these weren't rogue police officers. These were the religious elite and their temple officers. This was the Sanhedrin, chief priests, elders, scribes, and a high priest. This was the Jewish Supreme Court. But out of hatred, they acted like thugs, and some of them physically abused Jesus. Well, this now brings us to the remaining verses in this chapter. I think there's about seven verses left here. So let's resume our reading in verse 66, please. Now, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came And when she saw Peter warming himself at the fire, she looked at him and said, You are also with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And then he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean, and your speech or accent reveals it. Then he began to curse, and he swore, saying, I do not know this man of whom you are speaking. Then the rooster crowed a second time. At that moment, Peter called to mind the words that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you have denied me three times. And as he thought about it, he began to weep. All four Gospels describe the denials of Peter. Obviously, the story of Peter's failure is quite familiar to us. But I pray that as we continue on and wrap up our message, that God will speak to us in a fresh way about the important lessons that we can receive from this passage. You know, on the heels of a spiritual failure, some believers have wanted to know if they had lost their salvation or if they should get re-water baptized or if they needed to walk forward again at a gospel invitation and even if they needed to be born again again. Now, if that person is a genuine believer, the answer to all those questions is no. And it might even surprise some of you to hear me say that in many ways, this story is about the power of God's saving grace. All genuine believers need to understand that we've been redeemed and that we're new creations in Christ. But with that is the reality that we still live inside of our fallen flesh. Our spirit, our souls are redeemed, but our flesh is fallen and doomed. So the spirit and the flesh are constantly at war with each other. And so as we read in Galatians 5.17, The flesh fights against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Paul famously echoed that truth when he wrote, I really want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the very things I hate. What a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life dominated by sin? The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's recorded at the end of Romans 7. 
And then the very first verse in Romans 8 is, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's important to note that Paul was not backslidden when he wrote those words as some have wrongly imagined, and rather he was describing the spiritual battle that all committed believers experience. Even as Jesus had said earlier in this chapter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, that's so true. This doesn't mean that we're excusing ourselves from our sins or even giving ourselves a license to sin. We're simply acknowledging, listen, the reality of the spiritual battle. But with that, we can also learn to avoid some of the common problems that lead to spiritual failure. So you might want to write these down, but please give careful consideration to them. And the first problem that led to Peter's failure was his overconfidence from pride. Peter had way too much confidence in himself and far too much trust in his own strength and resolve. You know, we're warned in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, in Peter's defense, 1 Corinthians hadn't been written yet, but he had plenty of similar Old Testament verses to warn him. By the way, we often talk about Peter's three denials, but actually, sadly, Peter had an ongoing history of denials. When Jesus told the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and die, Peter denied the words of Jesus and responded, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Then in the upper room, when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, he came to Peter, who immediately protested, You shall never wash my feet. Later on, when Jesus told Peter he was going to deny him, Peter denied that he would deny him. (laughs) Even after the church was up and running in Acts 10, when Jesus instructed Peter to eat some non-kosher foods, Peter protested and denied Jesus, saying, Not so, Lord. As the old corny saying goes, denial is not just a river in Egypt. So listen, please. If we miss this, we miss one of the main and most important lessons here. Peter's failure to guard himself against pride and self-confidence led to him denying the Lord. We all know that pride is the oldest sin. We know that pride turned holy angels into fallen demons. We know that pride brought about the fall of mankind. We know that pride keeps millions of unsaved people from recognizing their need for Christ. But we must also recognize that pride leads to self-confidence and self-confidence to believing that we will not fall into sin, and then we do. This brings us to the second problem that led to Peter's failure, unheeded warnings. Just hours before in the upper room, Jesus had warned Peter that Satan was asking for him by name, wanting to sift him like wheat. Jesus even told Peter that when he returned, he should strengthen his brothers. Jesus then added that he was praying for Peter. But instead of listening and heeding, Peter sort of thumped his chest and said, Don't worry about me. I'm ready to dance with the devil. Then Jesus responded to Peter with another warning and prediction. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. But again, it went unheeded. And instead, Peter boasted that he would go to prison or die before he ever denied Jesus. A little while later, as they left the upper room and were headed to Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives... Jesus warned them all that they would forsake him that very night. And once again, it was Peter who protested, even if all these others fall away, I will never fall away. 
Peter failed to heed the warnings that God gave him. And listen, believers who fall into sin make the same dangerous mistake. God warns us and warns us and warns us, but we don't listen. The third problem that led to Peter's failure was his unprayerful heart. Remember, just a couple hours earlier, Peter was with Jesus, James, and John in Gethsemane. And while we understand that it was around midnight on the heels of a very long and tiring day, those three disciples were sleeping when they were to be watching and praying. Jesus not only asked them to pray, he also warned Peter after he had been sleeping, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The implication was that if Peter had been praying rather than sleeping, he could have responded differently to the temptation against him to deny Jesus. Think about that. Because of his prayerlessness, his heart was unprepared to handle that temptation. Like many of us, Peter boasted too much, listened too little, and then topped it off by failing to pray. Well, that brings us to the fourth problem that led to Peter's failure, his unwise decision. You know, it might surprise some of you to hear me say that Peter never should have been at that courtyard in the first place. So let me back up for a moment. Jesus had not only warned the disciples hours earlier, he had quoted Zechariah 13, 7, a prophecy that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep scattered. So Jesus was warning that they would flee and scatter when he was arrested. And in many ways, that was okay because Jesus was on a divine schedule headed to the cross. There's really no point in any of the disciples being there in the courtyard around Jesus. And let's just give Peter the benefit of the doubt that in his loyalty, he wanted to be there. But notice how he ended up in no man's land. And what I mean by that is either, you know, run away and stay away, or else if you're going to be in the courtyard, walk up to the soldiers and announce, I'm Christ's disciple and I stand by him. Instead, Peter found himself caught in the middle and trying to hide in plain sight. He was hanging out on the fringes and trying to blend in. He was warming his hands at the enemy's fire when he could have been warming his heart in prayer with the other disciples. Perhaps he was actually more curious than he was courageous, and he wanted information, but he clearly didn't want to be identified. As a result, Peter found himself in a precarious situation. He was about to learn the meaning of Jesus' words, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So now we come to the fifth problem that led to Peter's failure, his unguarded strength. You know, in most cases, we're all pretty aware of our weaknesses, so we take precautions, I hope, to keep ourselves out of harm's way. But interestingly, many of the best-known Bible characters ended up falling and failing, not in the areas of their weakness, but the areas of their strength. For example, Noah was a righteous man, but when he let his guard down, he ended up drunk and naked. Abraham was a man of great faith, but twice in Egypt, he became afraid and then lied about his wife, Sarah, and put her life in danger. Moses was known for his meekness, but it was his outburst of pride and anger that cost him his entrance into the promised land. David was a man of integrity, and then he had an affair with Bathsheba, and then he went on to have her husband Uriah killed in a vain attempt to cover it all up, and that haunted him for the rest of his life. Elijah the prophet was known for his great courage up on Mount Carmel, facing off with the 400 false prophets of Baal. 
But then Queen Jezebel put a death warrant out on him and he ran away in fear and then asked God just to take his life and end it all. And then there's Peter, also known for his courage. But because of his pride, presumption, and prayerlessness, he failed and fell in the very area of his strength. And so an unguarded strength can become a double weakness. But that brings us now to a sixth point and a very important one, unmerited grace. In spite of Peter's many failings, he was a genuine believer, a child of God. So when he fell and denied the Lord, the grace of God was there waiting for him. The Bible reminds us even when we are faithless, God remains faithful and he cannot deny himself. That's 2 Timothy 2.13. Let's also not forget that while Jesus predicted Peter's denials, he also prayed that his faith would not fail, and so Jesus also predicted his return from failure. As Paul reminds us at the end of Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And John Newton, the great hymn writer and pastor, well said, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. In closing then, let me encourage anyone who has uh, failed spiritually. Please listen. Like Peter, you may have failed miserably, but like Peter, Jesus is not done with you. Our failure in the past does not nullify God's purpose in the future. If the disciple who denied Jesus could become a pillar in the early church, well, my friend, there's hope for you and me as well. Your strength and commitment may have failed, but your salvation remains because you belong to God. When Jesus died on the cross for you, he died for every sin you ever have or ever will commit. So then, while we can't change the past, Jesus forgives the past and gives us a new beginning. Going back to Paul in Romans 8, nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in his doxology, I'll close with the words of Jude. He is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And that's in Jesus' name. Amen.